0: Thank you for that reading, Chris. Kids are invited to Children's Church. Do not let your hearts be troubled, is the way today's passage begins. And in in the Greek, it's almost like, do not let your heart be troubled. It's almost like a singular. Do not let your heart be troubled. Now, if you're reading the Bible chapter to chapter and something like that, and you don't have good memory of what comes before, which is if you're reading one every morning, exactly what happens to me. You pick up this and it says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And you go, that's nice. Um, That's a good saying. Uh, Jesus, let my heart not be troubled. And yet, if you're reading the gospel of john all the way through if you're stepping into the gospel of john what's happened right before this is that is that that jesus is loving these ones he's with his disciples who are about to find that he's leaving the world that his hour has come he's having dinner with them and staying with them this small group those whom he loves and what they've found out so far or the reader has found out is that is that this evil one this satan this devil has entered one of their hearts And that one is about to betray him. Not only that, Jesus starts to tell them that he's leaving the world, that he'll no longer be with them, that there's a departure here. And in the passage right before this, at the end of 13, it says that Peter will deny him. The the one who might be the leader of this group, the one near the top, will deny him three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. See, if you're, if you're following along with the story, this is an important word. Don't have your heart be troubled. And then if you're awake to life when you're reading the scriptures, which often for me is not the case, I'm just reading the scriptures because that's my spiritual discipline. But if you're awake to life while you're reading the scriptures, what does it mean to hear not to have your heart be troubled? All right up until recently got a print newspaper every morning they just raised the price a lot and so I quit Um, but there was enough in there to make your heart be troubled or if you check the news on your phone or if you even have some consciousness of of the world that we sort of live in now there's plenty that will trouble your heart there's a shooting in New Zealand this past week do not let your heart be troubled. And that's not even factoring in your own life. I have betrayers and deceivers and people departing in my own life and my own story. I've played that role as well. You have that going on as well. And then, then you have this world of risk. Um, this is the exciting part about today is, is we're dedicating Adley. And yet, like when you have a child, you're, you enter into this whole new world of risk in your life. I can't imagine for my mom having two twin boys go to college at the same time what it meant to hear, do not let your heart be troubled. See today's passage opens with this very keen awareness of what is going on in this world of the scripture and what's going on in our worlds. in that hearts are shaken and troubled often. Hearts are Hearts are torn apart, and so we, we hear from Jesus, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your heart be wrenched at this. And yet, like the disciples, there's sort of three questions here, and if you go back to the previous chapter, Peter asked, why can't we go with you? If you're following along, they ask three questions, and we think like they're not getting it. And yet, they're in a moment of troubled heart. They're in a moment where, where Jesus is trying to tell them what you see, what's about to happen is not the reality that's the most pressing and real for you as disciples. I'll be betrayed, I'll be handed over, I will disappear, and yet there will be a way in which I am more present to you than I was before. That while evil looks like it might have the last word, that while death looks like it might rain, just hang on a little bit longer because I'll come back and break through to new life. They're asking questions that I think would be fair to be asking at this moment. They're asking for direction in life and call in a way that I think calls out to us too. What's going on? It's easy. I mean, this is, this is um, there are moments in my life where um, amidst stress or, or struggles or challenges, for somebody to say, do not let your heart be troubled would be to also say back, do you have any idea what the hell is going on? There is so much wrong right now with my life or what's going on in the world. Do not let my heart be troubled. And yet, that's why we have a longer dialogue. That's why we have more to this story. As tempting it is as a pastor just to text back, hey, don't let your heart be troubled. God calls us in to enter life with people and to talk to them and to respond with their questions and to walk the way with them to the extent that we can. It's not just the throwaway verse is what I'm trying to argue at the start of today's sermon. And so what's going to happen for the next couple of weeks is we're going to walk through this last sepper discourse that Jesus has with the disciples as he brings these ones near to him that he's loved. And this is one of the amazing parts to consider as we go through this, is this is not news he wants to project out to the world and to everyone who believes in him and who doesn't believe in him. This is news for the inside that he wants to give to the people who are near to him and trust in him and will be with him as he returns. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Now, does any remember the book, The Last Lecture, that came out, I don't know, 10 years ago? sold really well. Sold amazingly well, actually. I looked it up on Wikipedia last week. Um, and uh, it was by a guy uh, who had found out that he was going to die from, I think, pancreatic cancer, this, Um And he, their school, I think, had a last lecture series that was like, what would you say if you were going to die? And it turns out that he's actually going to die. And so fitting time to have him give the last lecture is that he gives it. And, and it sort of condensed into a book. And in our society, that sold like... I mean, really well, more than most all books sell. It was huge. It was everywhere for a while. Had a purple cover, if you remember it, the the last lecture. And what, what I would say is that that's a common thing in the world, is what were their last words? What was the last thing they wanted people to know? How did they finish the race? This is a common question about socrates tell us what socrates said when he died an ancient philosopher and so it too is in this ancient world that jesus has his own last lecture here with the disciples that he knows he's going to die and what is it he wants to say to people what is it he wants to pass on and the, the 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 argument i tried to make last week is that if you want a condensed image of this if you're like you know A discourse doesn't do a lot for me. Show me action. The action that happens in in chapter 13 with the washing of the feet that is also continued at the other end of this story with the cross and resurrection are the actions that sort of fill out this picture. So you'll hear the word love a couple times in this passage. And it's a word that's traded sometimes cheaply uh, in our world. Uh, We equate diamonds with forever love, which is a weird thing. Um, and yet, uh, what happens in these, the love that Jesus is talking about is the kind that knows its place with God so much that it can take the lowest position and wash somebody's feet. Or so much so that it can lay its life down for its friends and go to the cross and death and resurrection. So if you want, the images that sort of fill in the words that we're reading here, they're sort of bookended on both sides of this. But one of the big chapter themes in this chapter the, the chapters that we're going to be discussing is where do you make your home? It's a Greek word for home up there. Is It's in our translation, rooms. You know, In my father's mansion, there are many rooms as the King James has preserved it for us. found out this week, this is completely off the side, but uh, that mansions in that, when they translated it that way, actually connotated like, it's a place where you could stay and have a dwelling and an abode. And mansions in our context make me think of lifestyles of the rich and famous and uh big pool tables and outside pools and endless waterfalls and and uh if you're young enough cribs is our version of that um good old cribs um what it meant when the king james chose to say mansion was it actually connotated in people is that there's a place that has room for dwelling there's a place for me to stay there's a room there So we might say, and it's not even that good, is that the Father's estate has many homes and many rooms, and Christ is going to prepare a place for us. That the Father's estate has a place for us to rest and abide. And abide is a theme that takes up a lot of the next chapter. And so one of the things that Jesus is asking his disciples in this world in which there is so much trouble is, can we find a place to abide and rest? Jesus says he's preparing that place for them and that he is there what they may also be sort of one of the things he'll he'll lead out in the scene is that they are going to be with him in the way that he is with them even as he goes you know, one of the images i thought of for this space which is not one i really understood until somebody really explained it to me does anybody know what negative space is like an art like yeah the thing is there in negative space uh does anybody have a simple explanation of negative space? Because I should have drawn something in my ha- Oh. Yeah, but, but in the negative space in an ad creates the thing itself, right? So like if you were to, man, I should have drawn something like this. Okay, if you were to draw a circle and there were color and life all around the circle and yet the circle was just a white circle, the circle would still be there. What? Okay, Kelly. Yes, those are the, I I didn't want to use ads. There's lots of ads that have, but that's fine. There's an arrow within the FedEx logo. Um, That negative space sort of creates the thing while it's not still there. And what Jesus is sort of talking about as disciples is a little bit more real than that, is that his withdrawing is actually going to create the space of the thing being there. It's actually going to be fulfilled in that spot. And so if you think about it that way is that is that Jesus is not here anymore but the imprint of him is so very really there. And the problem with negative space is you go, oh yeah, but it's not there. The difference what Jesus withdrawal is is that it actually fills almost more than it could have been filled while he was here. That's why I didn't use the negative space example but when you're up here it goes where it goes. The first question is we don't know where you're going. We don't know where you are going with Jesus as he says he's about to make this departure. It's a good question. If somebody tells you they're leaving and departing, you might want to know where they're going. Does everybody remember Jesus' answer to this one? A very famous one, "I am the way, the truth and the life," is that he says that that's the place to where he's going. See, Thomas is asking for sort of a geographical location. Where are you going? And what Jesus is drawing him back to is, okay, maybe you're not getting this. Is that to be with me, to be near me, to have your residing as one I'm making for you is to be with me. I'm not going to another spot or another place. I'm not leaving Jerusalem and going to Rome. I'm not doing anything like that. I'm leaving this world and you can't go with me. But if you wanted to follow... You would know this, that as you've known me as I lived, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, uh, as you think about him giving these words to his disciples, the ones whom he loved in a closed room together, makes it kind of a bad thing to put on a bumper sticker um, because this is disclosed to the people on the inside, to the people who are asking the question, where is Jesus going? When you pull it out of that context, it it generally means something else. But within the context of the story, this is somebody asking Jesus, where are you going? And his response is, the way is me. The truth is me. The life is me. I'm not going anywhere else you can go other than to be with me and to bind yourself to me. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The second question uh, that he gets is, "Can you just show us the Father? This is one of my it's a, when you talk to other Christians about Jesus and the, and the life he shows for us, and you get to something contentious. The question I always ask them is, can we agree that Jesus is the clearest picture we have of God? Can we say together that that if we 're going to debate on on sort of what happens in Joshua or or uh, some other place in the Old Testament or the character of who God is, can we at least agree that the clearest picture we have of the divine is within the picture we have as he walks among us in Jesus Christ? And most Christians say that's the case. That is true. And yet as we continue to discuss, we find out we believe all sorts of things that don't seem to be relevant to that, that about God, that don't seem to flow out of that Jesus is the clearest picture we have of God. Philip who asked this question he's struggling with it with the same way we do is that can you show us the father because the father can't be you the father isn't you can you show us just the father and this is similar to Moses's question when he asked that God would pass in front of him and what Jesus replies back is you've seen me you've been with me this whole time the works that I do, the way that I live, me being the way, the truth, and the life is the clearest representation you'll have of the Father. Trust and see that in me. Trust and know that in me. Jesus sort of claims here what well, we sort of move into sort of this, uh, this Trinity mix, which is hard, and it shows up here in this passage in a different way, but what he's saying is that he is the, the sort of mirror, the, the person of the Father here in earth. On Christmas Eve, I, I talked about, uh, if you remember pinhole projectors for the eclipse, um, you know, you, you, you had to, you can't stare at the sun, which is good advice all the time, um, and then you, you poked a hole in a sheet of paper, and you traced, and lots of people found the tree actually out here was a massive pinhole projector, for the eclipse as it was happening. Sorry, I didn't start the story with the eclipse. Um, uh, For the eclipse that was happening, you got to see all that. One of the things I proposed sort of on Christmas Eve is that Jesus is the pinhole projector of what the divine is for us. We can't look directly upon God as we can't directly look upon the sun. And yet Jesus, as he lives his life among us, as he walks in the world, as he heals and shows and makes his life, he becomes sort of the condensed. And the thing about the, the pinhole projector, it is a real image of what's happening. And not only that, it's like a condensed image. I remember in school that like if you felt where you were making the pinhole, it got hot. Like it has heat to it as you condense the light in that way. Um, it's almost like a magnifying glass in that way. And that's sort of the way that Jesus is for the fathers. He's the condensation of the divine into a way in which we can handle it and see it. And like Philip, we, we sort of wonder, like, um, can we see something more, right? Can we have a little bit more reassurance that it, this is this way? And he returns to them with this idea that um, that the people who are with me and who know the Father and will be with you with this advocate, there'll be people who keep my commands, which stems out of that last passage where Jesus washes the, Peter's feet despite his refusal and then instructs them into sort of the ethical command. And I think it's important to keep that pattern in perspective. See, the, the, the part of the struggle I have is sometimes I'm an obedience Christian I've always had this bizarre sort of belief that God is God, and so even if God were to command weird things, that that would be fine because God is God, which is, has its faults. It's not a perfect way to understand that. Uh, it might be like K-8 through eight way of accepting the divine, but I still live with that a lot. So for me, it's like obedience. God tell me what to do it's interesting the next line says i won't leave you as orphans in the world and one of the things happened this ties we have two illustrations now going on and this is a big mistake um so we the first illustration was about my relationship to god so we'll finish that one love and commandments is that first god loves us see i rescued that um Uh, first God loves us first God washes us and then we're invited into the ethical command of sort of doing the same and what happened for me in my life as I as I become or even still can happen is I'm like I want to be obedient more than I want to receive love from God that actually doesn't fire me up on the journey as much as it's like God is God God told me to do this and this is how it works out so orphans going back to the other analogy it turns out that the, in the state of Oregon, that it's pretty much illegal for them. They won't create an orphan, right? So as James and other parts of the Bible command Christians to care for the widow and the orphan, me being obedience-minded, also maybe some love, I'm like, I should probably do something that cares for the widow and the orphan. So I became a CASA, which is a court-appointed special advocate for children. These kids are taken from the state, normally at an older age, sometimes younger because their parents are addicts, abusive um, uh, negligent, uh, any, any sort of things. And so they train people because nobody speaks on behalf of the children. The parents get an attorney, the state has an attorney, the children have a caseworker, but at the at the court cases nobody really speaks for the child. They all speak for their various interests and so it's, uh, it's it, we have them everywhere. Um, and so I became a CASA, this court-appointed special advocate for children. And when they asked me to fill out the form, like, why did you become a CASA, you know, lots of the people who go through it, and the training is not easy. It is easy. You can't fail it. It's a lot of time. So that's what makes it not easy. You have to train. We had to train for four hours every week for eight weeks, which is, why would anybody do that? But, um, so I completed my training, um, and they asked me, why did you become a CASA? And I was like, at the time, I didn't like kids that much. Um, I didn't. Uh, particularly feel called to this. It was obedience to God. Uh, And so what I wrote down on the form was my religion tells me to care about the widow and the orphan. And I figured this is the closest I can get. Um, And that sort of was my obedience mindset playing out there. And what I think we find in this next line is that Jesus tends not to leave us as orphans in the world. He tends to be present there. And so when you think about the state of being an orphan, in this world too, it's not to have anybody near you. It's not to have family where you inherit a business. It's not to have anybody to bring you up in a trade. It's not to have anybody to sort of guide you into the world. I mean, in some sense, and this is the better way to think about it, is don't be like me and become obsessed with getting to know widows and orphans. It's not a bad thing, but actually become obsessed with getting to know the least powerful people in the society and in your world. Because both widows and orphans in the ancient world are the least powerful with the least access and with the least that they can sort of achieve and do. Part of why the book of Acts talks about the Christians' care of the widows so much is because Christians have learned to follow the Jesus to care for those who are least. But what Jesus reminds his disciples is that as he is departing, is he's not going to leave them as orphans in the world, as people with no one with them. But that, in fact, he's still going to be, continue to be present with them. And not only that, that as he lives, they will live with him. That the life he's going to after this will be so abundant that it will flow into them. That Jesus is going to be present in a way to them in which he couldn't be now. And the other thing he talks about with them, I'm trying to think, is... Um, Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not the world? This is the next question, the last question, from Judas. And I love that the narrator is even like, not that guy. Um, just because uh, you, if your name was Judas, you'd want it to be clear. Hey, whenever you write it down, make sure it put, I'm not that guy, I'm the other one. Um, but uh, Judas asked this question, Lord, why do you intend yourself to show yourself to us and not the world? Which I think is a very powerful question for us to consider as well, is that Jesus, why entrust this message, this world-altering message of your conquering over death, your victory into new life, the invitation to our eternal life, and the presence that you are going to continue on in your believers, why would you give that to us and not reveal it to the whole world? Why would you entrust that to people named Judas or Peter? Why would you entrust that to these people in the world why don't you show it to everyone and what jesus tells them is anyone who loves me will obey my teaching which is this idea with this rabbi culture in the sense of which you are going to show it to the world you are going to be the ones who bring this out to the world uh, we've been around churches long enough to ask lord why did you intend to show yourself to us and not the whole world, might make more sense. And yet Jesus' and God's plan is through the advocate and through his counselor and through his presence with us for us to be the means of showing that into the whole world. And what Jesus believes is that that will be a greater thing, it says in this passage, that he did while he was on earth. And you think, Matt, we did seven signs. He changed water into wine, which is cool, also nice. Um, he healed people, he raised people from the dead, he gave sight to the blind. What does it mean that we, as we continue this on, will do greater things than he did while he was on earth? And yet as we keep in mind all the signs as we went through them, he was clearly trying to say, this is a visual picture of the deeper truth in which I'm trying to point you to. He gets frustrated by people who come to him for only signs. There's something else, a deeper reconciliation, a deeper union, a deeper truth, a different love and service that goes beyond just the signs that he's calling the disciples to. So if you forget about the signs and view it the way that I think God views it, which is this idea is that Jesus in his incarnate form could only be in one place and only give his last lecture to 11 guys, one left. There might be other people in the room, but it it seems like, you know, a small group of people. The houses weren't that big, so it couldn't have been that large of a group. And yet, as he leaves this world and is present in the lives of his disciples, this message can go from Judea to Galilee to Samaria to the ends of the earth to Rome to Spain to India to China. All the places we have churches today. That that's the way God says, look, through this love and this life and teaching I'm giving you, you will bring this out to the world in a greater way than I could do incarnate myself. And so Jesus says that he'll give this advocate, this piraclete to his teachers, this this helper. Uh, the, The message Chris said, friend, which is a translation I ran into this, this one who is near to them, the spirit that will empower them and bring them into this mission. He won't leave you as orphans, but will leave you with someone who will remind you and be near to you all the time, and even, as it says in this passage, be in you, which is not something Jesus can do while he's teaching the disciples. He's never inside of any of them. It says uh, uh, the devil enters into Judas, so the devil seems to have that power while Jesus is incarnate, but Jesus says that This one, as he is like me, will enter into you and bring you to all that I've taught. It's not something he could do while he was here, but through his death and resurrection, he becomes able to enter into all of us. And he ends with, My peace, I leave you. Or near ends with, My peace, I leave you. This is to go back to the beginning. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not get bogged down in these things. Don't let the failures of those who you've surrounded yourself with trouble you. Because here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be more present to you. I'm going to be more connected to you. I'm going to be nearer to you now than maybe you are even near to yourself. And through that, This mission and this life is going to extend out into the world in ways that it wasn't capable of while I was here. And I give you a friend and a spirit to accomplish that. And through that, I leave you with my peace. Because the one who's coming, the one who seems to have the power of the moment, doesn't have power over me, is what he says. And that peace of knowing that is the peace he leaves us. Let us pray. God, may our hearts not be troubled. You are going to prepare a place for us. You are going to make a life for us. We are going to live with you as you live with us. For us, may you be the way, the truth, and the life. May it be our path the union with God and union with you. We invite your spirit into this place to be near to us, to touch our lives. May we move into obedience through the love that you've shown us. May you make a home with us and reside here. God, we ask that your peace would be evident in this place, evident in our lives, as we live in a world that has troubles. But you give us your peace. I ask all of this in your holy name. Amen.